Thank you to Henderson and the rest of the praise team for leading us, for reminding us through the power of music of the connection that we have with God and for his sacrifice and for his triumphant resurrection. Luke writes to provide the substance on which to base our beliefs. I have been blessed, and I hope that you have, with our seven-month journey through his gospel. And today we come to the final chapter as he deals with the resurrection and the events that followed. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul asserts the reality and vital importance of Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then none of us will be either, and we're guilty of preaching lies. Paul is convinced that he is speaking truth. Our study of Luke 24 today will reveal that not all of his disciples were easily convinced of this truth. The question must be answered by each of us. Do I believe Jesus lives? Whether your answer is yes or no, it will dramatically color your life experience. Let's pray. Dear Father, as you did for the two on the road to Emmaus, as you did for those in the upper room, through your Spirit, open our eyes this morning to know the truth and the implications for our daily lives. Amen. Following the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, only Matthew records these details. That on the Sabbath, the same Jewish leaders who didn't want to enter Pilate's judgment hall on Friday find it imperative that they go and see him. They remember what the disciples have forgotten. Jesus promised to rebuild the temple in three days, and they now have an understanding that this applies to his life. So they go to Pilate and request a guard of soldiers be placed around the tomb. And they follow them to the tomb to make sure that it is sealed with Pilate's seal. Only Matthew records an earthquake and an angel of light that we picture attending this magnificent resurrection of the Son of God. The other gospel writers, including Luke, are content to present what took place on Sunday morning shortly after this blinding, earth-shattering, history-changing event of cosmic importance. They focus their attention on the response of a group of women, on the response of Mary Magdalene and her personal encounter, on the experience of John and Peter, and on the general disbelief that unsurprisingly colored that day in the upper room. So let's take a look at what Luke writes in his closing chapter. I'm going to be reading our way through this and taking time then to unpack parts of it. So if you want to open with me, I'll be reading starting in Luke 24, chapter 1, and this is the English Standard Version. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that is a group of women, went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of Jesus and of, of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So, this group of women is concerned about completing the preparation of the dead body, and this brings them to the garden tomb at the light of day. And they find the tomb empty. There is no body. The angels attempt to allay their anxiety by explaining how the scene in front of them meshes what, with what Jesus has already told them would take place. The angels ask a most important question, one that rings down 2,000 years to our day. We look for our heroes of history in marked graves. The angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's another way of saying, why are you expecting Jesus to be just like any other man? So the question comes to me. What does it look like for us to seek the living among the dead? One way that this can happen is to say, Jesus is one of the greatest men who ever lived. Or, Jesus is my hero. I think he was a great man. Or, Jesus, Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, Mahatma Gandhi, all great men. Each of these statements stops short of recognizing Jesus as the risen Lord. Each of these ignores the unmatched claims that Jesus made that he was and is the Son of God. I look for him among the dead when I deny him the place of honor, the place of Lord in my daily thoughts and actions. I am looking for him among the dead when I see him as an interesting figure to be studied or as the perfect pattern and example. Jesus is not only someone to be studied, he is someone to be met and lived with every day. He is not simply a model for my life. He is a living presence to help us live the abundant life he has promised. As disciples of Jesus, we must experience his lively presence outside the tomb. Through the agency and power of his spirit, he is here to draw us, to empower us, to encourage us, to direct our steps, to mourn with our heartbreaks and to rejoice in our daily decisions to accept the rule of his love in our hearts. The angels at the tomb proclaim triumphantly, he is not here for he is risen. 
the women obediently relay the fantastic message to the apostles. And what happens? The news is so unbelievable that they see it as an idle tale. The men who followed him most closely are among those who do not believe. Do not be too quick to condemn their disbelief. They have been rocked by grief, by missed expectations, and by the fear of discovery. How often have I failed to take the words of Jesus at face value under far less trying circumstances? Let's take a closer look at some of the players in this account. Aren't you surprised to see Peter there? It is just two and a half days since Peter's crushing denial of Jesus. Amazingly, we find that Peter is still meeting with the larger group of disciples in the upper room. Have you ever stopped to think what this felt like for Peter? To his grief over losing Jesus must have been added shame for how he cursed Jesus when both of them were under attack. Have you ever thought how you would have responded if you were part of the larger group of grieving disciples? Would you have wanted to shun Peter, remain distant from him? Or would you have seen your own lack of support for Jesus evident in his blatant denial? I typically withdraw or distance myself from people who make me feel ashamed or uncomfortable. It is only through the work and power of the Holy Spirit that I can behave otherwise. It is likely that as poorly as Peter felt, he realized that he simply had nowhere else to find a sense of belonging, to find community. And that is what I want to find in this church body, that when I fall, I have and I will again, when I fail, that I will find that I have in this body of believers the most encouraging, supportive, and lovingly honest extended family. And when I enjoy success, this same community will keep me grounded in that truth and what is of, that what is most important is the glory of God's character being revealed among and within this community. I want to grow to be that kind of support and that kind of grounding influence for you as well. This will be our reality as we continually invite the Spirit to proceed with the work of healing our hearts and curing us of the baggage of our sinfulness. Peter seems to be one of the few motivated enough to at least examine whether the story the women are telling is true. In the process, he experiences a sense of marvel. Later, we will read that Jesus has appeared to him. How sweet is that? The next section of the chapter, starting in verse 13, is often titled, On the Road to Emmaus. And because of the nature of classical artwork and what's been included even in our Desire of Ages, we typically picture this as being two men. But only one of them is named. And there's no reason that I could find that the other one couldn't have been a woman. We certainly find many women attending to Jesus and in the group of disciples. So let's read this together, maybe with that different picture in your mind. And that very day, 
Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those that were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. What do you think it would have felt like emotionally to have been Jesus on this day? What are the highs and perhaps a low? He has risen from the tomb. He has conquered death and the grave. He has done what he came to accomplish, at least as far as most of us are concerned. He has comforted a teary Mary Magdalene. He has appeared to Peter. From his interchange with Mary, we gather that he had an appearance to make in the heavenly courts. This is, in my opinion, no cursory or perfunctory visit. This is likely where the words of Psalm 24 would fit. This is where the accolades of Revelation 5, 12, and 13 may also have their place. What has been accomplished over this Passover weekend is the most fantastic news in the cosmos. Love has conquered the kingdom of Satan, death, and the grave. The universe 
will now be restored to its created perfection because of the ramifications of what has just occurred. When we think of celebrating an amazing accomplishment, we don't usually think of taking a hike. But that's what Jesus does. He takes the time to hike the seven or so miles down the hill from Jerusalem to Emmaus so that he can open the hearts and minds of two disciples so that they might understand truth. That's his idea of celebration. Jesus does not overpower them with the glory of his presence or of what he has just accomplished. He does not allow them to discover his full identity until their minds have been settled in the truth by a clear explanation of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus is so intent on preserving their freedom of choice, their freedom to make up their own minds on the strength of evidence, that he appears to press on into the night once they reach home. Only after they ask him to share the hospitality of a simple meal do they find out that they have been with Jesus. The two in Emmaus are so excited that they have met Jesus that though it is night, they retrace their stumbling steps back up the hill seven miles to Jerusalem to share this wonderful news of the resurrection and their newfound understanding of the scriptures with the larger group in the upper room. And so Jesus now comes to appear to that group, going on in verse 36. And what we have to picture is that though they did not see him, that Jesus accompanied them on this journey and slipped in the door as they went in. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The human reaction to recognizing the presence of God seems to be shock and disbelief. Jesus does not demand that they simply accept him. He accommodates their humanity. He takes steps to protect the integrity of their sanity. He begins by trying to allay their anxiety. He does not scold them for their shock and fear. He appeals to their senses. See the scars, touch my limbs, feel my flesh and bones, watch me eat your food. Luke was a physician with a Greek heritage. With the Greeks, the body was sinful and the spirit was holy. For the Greek in death, the mind and spirit were finally freed from their bondage to the body. Only when we acknowledge this background do we begin to understand the transformation that has to take place in his Greek mind 
and in the minds of his Greek audience to accommodate a holy risen Lord who takes time to provide evidence of his physical being following his resurrection. A plain reading of scripture would not have provided that insight. Once he has given these evidences, Jesus does not change the approach he took during the conversation on the road to Emmaus. Read on with me, verse 44 and 5. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is a very beautiful verse to me. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus took the time to develop a clear understanding of the messianic prophecies in the minds of the group gathered in the upper room. He took the time to build their understanding based on material that they already had been told. He demonstrated kindness and firmness in his style of teaching. He did not surprise them with some new secret knowledge. He cleared up those ideas that had placed their hope in an earthly kingdom and explained their true meaning. I am sure that he fit the material together in a new way with amazing clarity. In order to protect their freedom of choice, he did not appeal to the strength of his considerable personal authority. God has given us a very valuable and yet dangerous gift, and that gift is free will. God has gone to great lengths and personal expense to preserve our power of choice. We are free to choose to turn our backs on him in open rebellion, or we are free to choose to live life as it was intended in the strength of his spirit and the power of his love. Verse 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. With clear understanding comes the responsibility to implement an action plan. Those who are present are qualified to spread this good news because they are not only witnesses of his resurrection, but they now have a new and much improved understanding of the scriptures that point to and confirm who Jesus is. What preparation must take place before the plan is put into action? They are to wait. It is really hard to wait when I have a clear plan of what I am to do. They must wait, and we must wait. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for power from above. Jesus starts the implementation of the first and the greatest evangelistic endeavor to date with the clear message. This plan will not depend on our strength, but it will only be accomplished through the power of His Spirit. 
This instruction is so important that Luke repeats it in Acts 1. How many times have I acted on my own without waiting for the Spirit's leading? Have we collectively fallen into the trap of believing that the progress of the spreading of the gospel depends on our strength? I have witnessed the human tendency of men and women to feel that they must convict others and bring them to a decision to follow Jesus. At the very beginning, when Jesus delivers the gospel commission, he is telling those who are eyewitnesses, those who have been blessed with his ultimately clear explanation of scripture, that they are to approach this task only in the power of his Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of being used as vessels, vessels that contain perhaps some of the water of life. People are transformed by the water of life, not by the vessel. The vessel is simply a means of delivery. And going on to the ultimate conclusion of this story, the ascension, in verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. As Jesus is blessing them, he departs. What is their response? Aren't you surprised that there are no tears, no expressions of sorrow? They worship. They return to Jerusalem filled with joy. No longer are they hiding in the upper room. They spend all their time in the temple giving thanks to God. Their daily lives are filled with gratitude. Luke begins his gospel with the story of Zacharias meeting an angel while serving in the temple. Luke ends his gospel with the followers of Jesus worshiping in the temple. Worship is meant to be the beginning and the end of our stories. Worship is what we were created for. Worship is the natural response to a God who created, reclaimed, and protects our freedom so lovingly. Let us worship our Lord, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Let us worship the one who personally took responsibility for initiating God's plan of salvation. Let us worship the one who delivered on his promise to send us the spirit that lives in us and empowers us to be witnesses for him. We each respond to and express worship differently at different times. In conclusion, I'm going to read a short poem that would be perhaps the quieter expression. Following that, we're going to have a music video that would be a more exuberant expression. This is, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. O come, let us adore him, the baby born in humble circumstance under a cloud of innuendo. O come, let us adore him, the young boy in the temple, 
wise beyond his years. O come, let us adore him, the master teacher, reordering our priorities, crystallizing our picture of what God is in truth. O come, let us adore him, the master healer, making us whole, body, mind, and spirit. O come, let us adore him, the prayer warrior taking time apart to commune with the Father for daily strength. O come, let us adore him, the Savior demonstrating the devastating natural consequences of sin in his own body for the benefit of all of creation. O come, let us adore him, rising triumphant over sin, death, and the grave. O come, let us adore him as he patiently explains the evidence that confirms his identity and his mission. O come, let us adore him as rising from this earth, he releases a more powerful expression of his love and presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. O come, adore him. For by his love, he has conquered fear and made eternity vibrant and secure. For all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.
So, Father, as we go from this place, may we have that timid faith of Peter to examine if the story is true. And as your Spirit guides us, may we find that it is all too true and all too wonderful to know that you are risen indeed and that we can have faith ultimately in you and live our lives in the meaning of that truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.